We're going to be in the book of Genesis this morning. We're going to try to go through a whole chapter. I said a Sunday or two ago that we're trying to pick up the pace uh, in this text. So this morning we're going to live up to that. And we're going to try to get all the way through Genesis chapter 4. Five, uh, 32 verses. Uh, but if you've been around our church much, if, if this isn't like the first month you've been with us, uh, but you've been around a while, uh, you may have noticed something on the stage up here that we changed a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago, month and a half ago. It's that there used to be a cage around the drum set. We call it a cage, like a see-through plexiglass type of thing that was around the drum set. Uh, we uncaged the drummers uh, a few weeks ago. Some of you may have noticed right away. Some of you may have not noticed at all. I am thankful that we did. So it was Ben's idea. I support the idea. I think it's good. Uh, the drums are a valuable contribution uh, when we're singing together. If you think, I don't know if you think about this, but if you pay attention to drums or other percussion instruments, uh, there's something powerful about them. Uh, there's a lot of value in them that they give us rhythm, right? Keep us synchronized, uh, or at least they help us try to be synchronized, right? As a, as a church and as we sing, uh, they give like a cadence. They give a drive uh, to the music. They keep moving it forward. There's value, and they, those drums, they pair well with a melody, right? With the things that we sing or the notes that we play that we might think of as, oh, that's the song, the notes of the melody that are up high. They're supported when there's drums underneath. Uh, the drums support that brighter, higher melody, but drums can become overpowering. Uh, they can, some of you may have been in places like this before or, or churches like this before where, where drums, if they're used, can become overpowering. And I was thinking about that this week. I remembered a video, it was about 10 years ago, I think. Uh, there's these different uh, sites or accounts on social media, things like worship fails, like where they just record like a keyboard falling or, some, or like a fake tree falling on a guy or something like that. There's one, it is hilarious. If you look it up, don't do it now. Uh, but uh, it's a church service and there's a lady standing at a keyboard like this and she's playing this song called Oceans. That was about a decade ago and she's singing these just quiet quietly kind of singing these lyrics that say things like, I will, I'm not going to sing it, but I will call upon your name and keep my eyes above the waves. When oceans rise, my soul will rest in your embrace, for I am yours and you are mine. They're like these just soft, sweet uh, lyrics. And then the, the guy that is on the drums just starts going to town, like, like all these like crashing cymbals and fills and like every drum you can hit and all these quick drum kit like bass drum kicks and you're like what in the world <laughs> like what are you doing uh and he's just he is living his best life like filling out all of this uh just quiet in the room uh and most of the time when he's doing it he does it a couple of times in the song there's a full version if you look it up he does it a couple of times and most of the time it's just him playing but there's a time or two where she's trying trying to still sing as well, and you are not paying attention to what she is singing whatsoever. You're just thinking, why is this guy playing all of these drums so hard and so fast? Uh, so all that to say, and this will this makes sense why I'm mentioning this, drums are best in the background, like they're best underneath the melody, right? They're, they're not best when they're overpowering it and dominating it because uh, sometimes when they do that, you don't even hear the melody. You're not even paying attention to it all. You're just feeling the force and the drive and the rhythm of the drums. They can drown out the melody and we can miss the message of the song, 
right? Uh, by just hearing the drum beat. And, and th- this morning's text, this chapter, and especially in reading the whole chapter, you're going to see this and you're going to feel it. But this text has a beat to it. Like it has a drum beat to it, this text. And it's, it's a literary beat. It's not a musical one, right? This isn't a song. It's, it's a genealogy of all things. But it does have a beat. It has a rhythm to it uh, that's very driving. And you're going to hear it with your ears at least, I hope, when I read it uh, here in a moment. But my hope this morning is also that you feel it in your soul, that you feel the, the beat of this song in your soul. And it, it's not a sweet drum beat. Right? It's, it's a drumbeat of death, uh, and it's loud if you have ears to hear it. Uh, it is a loud drumbeat, and it could be uh, distracting to us. It could become overpowering to us where it's all we hear in this text, where it's the only thing that we feel coming out of it, and it could make us miss some of the notes that are even in here of the melody that's up higher, the, the melody of grace, the melody of hope that's in this text. And so I'm going to read this here in a moment, Genesis chapter 5. Where we're at in this book is the first book of the Bible. We've been going through it for a few months. We've witnessed a lot of things already. Uh, we've witnessed the creation of the universe, right, and its inhabitants, the people who live within it. We've seen Adam and Eve as our first parents rebel against God, right, and God uh, kick them out of the garden and pronounce a curse upon the world. Uh, and, but in that, he promised a rescuer to come someday, right, who would bruise the head of the serpent. Uh, we've seen the last couple weeks, we've seen uh, Adam and Eve's family slowly grow, Right, that, that uh, they started even outside the garden to have children. And last week, uh, Adam Pennard preached for us, which wherever you are, brother, thanks for preaching. You did a great job. Uh, Adam preached for us from the end of Genesis 4, uh, where one of their sons, uh, Adam and Eve's sons, Cain, uh, that, record, that section recorded his genealogy, who were some of his descendants, these first several generations. Uh, and we, we saw at the end of that text, the end of chapter 4, that God had provided after uh, Abel had been killed, that God provided another son to Adam and Eve, this son named Seth. And where we're picking up today is going to be another genealogy. It runs like parallel in a lot of ways to the genealogy of Cain that we saw last week. Uh, it's a little bit longer and a bit different in some ways, but it's going to be the genealogy of Seth. That's going to get us all the way from Seth to Noah. And the next week we're going to pick up chapter 6 where the story of Noah and the flood starts to get set up. And so I want to read this for us. I'm going to read this entire chapter of Genesis chapter 5. We've started the last few weeks. We'll see. I, I like this as a general pattern that after I read this text, I'm going to say, because it's true, this is the word of the Lord. And then if you believe that, I would encourage you uh, in response to say, thanks be to God. So thanks be to God. Four words. Y'all can do it. It's 32 verses from now, though, so remember to say it. So uh, I'm going to read this text, and I, I want you to listen to see if you feel the drumbeat of this text, but also see if you can hear some notes in the melody of hope along the way, too. So uh, Moses, under the inspiration of the Spirit, continued his record of early humanity this way. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. 
When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Canaan. Enosh lived after he fathered Canaan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Canaan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Canaan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Canaan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years. And he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years. And he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years. And he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord had cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years. And he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's a lot in here. I want to summarize uh, this chapter uh, this way, um, in this summary statement, that God's melody of grace cannot be drowned out by the drumbeat of death. That God's melody of grace cannot be drowned out by the drumbeat of death. I want to begin uh, this morning's message from this text by uh, drawing attention to the drumbeat. Uh, drawing attention to the drumbeat of death that's in this text. And uh, it's a hard one. It, it's a difficult one. Uh, but it, this drumbeat is what drives this passage, this rhythm of death. And so the first thing, there's just going to be two basic things I want you to, to experience or, or see in this text. The first one is I want you to feel the beat of this text. I truly want you to feel it, like in your heart and soul. I, I think we often could, we could easily miss it. Uh, 
pieces of literature often have rhythms and patterns to them, right? Uh, especially poems, uh, they have rhythm and pattern. Uh, this text, it's a historical record, it's a genealogy, but it has a rhythm to it as well. Even really the book of Genesis as a whole has a cadence to it. Uh, ten times in this book, there's this phrase that appears right at the beginning of our passage this morning where it says, these are the generations of so-and-so. Uh, they serve as these kind of markers in the book of, hey, here's a new section that's about to start. And so uh, verse 1 keys us in that this is another step forward in the book of Genesis, that this is the book of the generations of Adam. And so we know this is a new section of the book. We had seen our first one of those back in chapter 2, where it said that these are the generations of the heavens and earth. Now we see these are the generations of Adam. So there's a rhythm to this book as a whole, but there's definitely a rhythm within this chapter, right? I mean, you hopefully felt it, or you see it with your eyes even, the, the choppiness of it. There's a rhythm there's, uh, to this particular text. This passage, this genealogy that, that moves from uh, Adam down to Noah and his sons, it's a, a genealogy that has nine, essentially, very, very similarly constructed records, right? Of this generation, and this generation, and this generation. Uh, and they're very tightly uh, constructed. They're very consistent. You probably notice there's a, a pattern that, that follows very, uh, very consistently, right? It mentions uh, for each of these men, it mentions their age, right? When they have this next son. Uh, it mentions uh, the number of years that they lived after that, Right? Obviously, it mentions the son's name. Um, it mentions that they had other sons and daughters without specifying how many or who they were. Uh, and then it mentions that, that adds those two numbers already up and says this man lived this total amount of years. And then there's the ominous end to most all of these, right? That and he died. And he died. And he died. And he died, right? That, that this is put here on purpose. I think we're, when they would have first heard this read or when we see it with our eyes, we're to take notice of it. The, the rhythm, the pattern of and he died, and he died. And death features very prominently in this genealogy. Uh, and it's supposed to. It's not in the background, it's in the, the foreground. Uh, and this is the point, I would say, in all the scriptures when the grim reality of death really starts to settle in, right? This is the point. We've, we've kind of seen it mentioned a little bit in Genesis thus far, but this really is when it starts to hit. The drumbeat of death starts to hit and hit and hit and hit. Death has been mentioned, right? Like back in the garden, God had told Adam, and the day that you eat of it, if you eat of this tree that I forbid, you will surely die, right? As a, as a this forecast of what would be, right? We saw it in Genesis chapter 3 when God was pronouncing this judgment upon the earth and upon man even where he's told Adam that you were made from the ground, like you were made from dust and you'll return to dust, right? But it's still future out there, like it will happen someday. We saw in chapter 4 a few uh, references of death, right? We saw murder even in these first siblings that Cain killed Abel. We saw even in the genealogy that Adam preached last week, and we saw the mention of murder again, where this man Lamech, uh, who's a different one from the one mentioned today, uh, but this Lamech who is a descendant of Cain, it's almost like he reveled in the fact that he had killed people, 
right? So it's been mentioned. It's been sort of there in the text, but this is when death starts to really set in, the reality of it, the inevitability of it really starts to set in, right? Because thus far in Genesis, the only deaths we have heard of for sure were related to violence, right? Or related to murder, of Cain and Abel, and then of Lamech mentioning this uh, young man that he had killed. It's sort of implied in the genealogy of Cain that these men died, but it more mentions this guy fathered so-and-so, and and he fathered so-and-so, and and he fathered so-and-so. It's like this good part of human existence, but death has been sort of in the background, but here it's brought much more forward in the text, and that's very much on purpose. Because I think what we see in this, as we follow this line of Seth, uh, is that death is thrown in our faces. It floods our ears and it shows us that death doesn't just come as a result of violence. It comes as a result of fallenness and sin, right? And that's true of all of us. It's not just that we need to fear that we're going to be struck down by a fellow human, but death will inevitably come to all of us. It's seen in this text. No matter how full of faith we are, death comes, right? And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. And I, I appreciate that in this text, it's just, there's no euphemism for it, right? It's not, oh, and he passed on, or he uh, uh, gave up the ghost, or whatever. Like, whatever euphemism, it just matter-of-factly says the truth. That he died. He died. He died. He died. And these brothers, they lived long lives, right? I, I cannot fathom living 969 years. Uh, they lived long lives, and they, they may have felt like an eternity to them, but there was an end coming to each of these lives, right? There, there was a, a terminal point where their lives would come to an end. And I think that the, the feeling of the beat of this passage is important for us uh, because I think this text is here to help us, among other things, to face our own mortality, uh, to face up to it, to see it coming, uh, to know that it is coming for us, that death is coming for us. And we contend as human beings, I think different cultures or different individuals could, could when it comes to the subject of death, we could end up on two uh, poles, maybe, if you want to think of it that way, as we think about death. One would be that we could ignore it, and we can kind of just push it out of our mind and pretend it's not there, pretend it's not coming. Or the other is that we can obsess about it, right? And we can dread it, and it is always before us. We cannot get our minds away from it. So we either ignore it or we obsess about it. I'm guessing, I, I don't know your heart, but I, I think generally in our culture, and I'm guessing true of many of you, many of us in the room, that we tend more toward this end. That as we think about death, our temptation is more to ignore it, to not think about it, to not contemplate it, uh, to not face up to the reality of it. In our culture, we often keep death out of view nowadays, right? Many of us, we don't have animals around. For example, on a farm with these beings with shorter lifespans where we're seeing death right in front of us, that's out of sight, Right? The death of other creatures. But even the death of humans, we, I think unintentionally, we might not think of it this way, but we keep it out of view on purpose. Like we, grandmas typically die in the nursing home or the hospital, right? Not in the family home. 
right? Like that they used to in generations gone by. Cemeteries in our culture nowadays aren't in churchyards any longer. They're in some part of town that's kind of tucked away, a more serene part of town where death is out of view, right? End of life care is typically done by professionals now as opposed to family members, and I'm not saying that any of these things are bad. In some ways, those can be good things, that, that, uh, that there, there can be value to some of these things. And in some ways, especially with children, like trying to keep elements of it out of view. But in general, our culture tries to keep death out of our line of sight, right? We, we've sidelined it. We keep it away, out of view. And what slowly starts to happen is we can pretend like it's not real, Right? We can pretend like it's kind of out there, and yeah, I know that concept, but I don't feel it getting closer to me. I don't hear that drumbeat of death. Right? And we can be like those little kids who think that just by covering their ears that they make the sound go away, right? or just by closing their eyes that the thing that they're afraid of is now all of a sudden gone because they don't see it. Uh, we can be like that, even us grown-ups. Uh, where we just are covering our ears, we're, we're keeping that drumbeat from coming in to our ears, we're covering our eyes as if it's not there, uh, we keep death out of view. But this drumbeat didn't stop at the end of this text, right? Like it started, the first living being dies in this text, the first living human dies in this text, Adam, right? And this drumbeat has continued for thousands of years now. It has been steady, it has been consistent, it has been beating continually. It's even sped up, right? These guys lived hundreds and hundred years, almost a millennia. Like they, they lived, right? Our lives at best are a hundred years, right? And we'll see that later in Genesis, 120 years maybe at max. Uh, we, we live comparatively short lives, so this drumbeat, if anything, it's not gotten longer, it's gotten, qu- our longer gap between them has gotten shorter. Our lives are shorter even than these folks were. And I would note too, the length of our life is unpredictable, right? It's not like this brother died at 912, the next guy died at 912, the next guy died at 912, the next guy, there's variation even in their long life of how long they live and there's variation in ours, right? In this room, some of us will have short lives some of us will have long lives. We, we don't know. There's an unpredictability to it that death comes not on our schedule, right? It comes when the Lord brings it to us. And it is important for us to remember and face up to the brevity of our life, uh, that there is an end to this earthly life that is coming uh, for each of us. Right? Moses, the man who recorded this for us, he wrote a psalm. He wrote Psalm 90. And there's a, a text I reference a lot, but he wrote in Psalm 90, verse 12, he said, as a prayer to God, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Right? There, there's a goodness for us remembering death, for us remembering that this drumbeat is there, that is loud, that it's consistent, that death is coming for us. There's a goodness that comes in our soul. There's wisdom that can come uh, through this acknowledgement of death and mortality, this acknowledgement that our lives are like a vapor, they're like a mist, right? Uh, Solomon in Ecclesiastes, he wrote this. He said, and our culture does not think of it this way. He said, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. So he was communicating, it's better to go in some ways to a funeral than to a party. 
right? There's a sobriety that comes when we know that death is looming, that death came for this brother or sister. Death is coming for me too. And it's coming for you as well. There's even going to be a funeral in this room six days from now of a dear sister who used to be part of our congregation who died young in her 50s. Like it, we could try to push this away, this reality of death, keep it out of our view, pretend that it's not there, but the drumbeat is continuing and you can't shut it off. Like you can't ward it off. You can't uh, keep it away. You can't keep the drum of death from beating. And though many of us uh, are tempted to ignore this drumbeat of death, the other end of the spectrum is real too. That death can, when we start to pay attention to it, when we, start, when we hear a text like this and hear death, 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 and we see loved ones around us die, we have friends die, we can start to become terrified of death, right? Like when those earmuffs come off and the sound starts coming in, we can become obsessed with it. Charles Spurgeon said that we, can, we feel a thousand deaths in fearing one. That we can start to become consumed with death, this idea of it, that it's coming for me and it haunts me and I dread it, right? And if, if Satan was to, to be a sound mixer uh, in a sound booth and think of like the percussion and the voices and whatnot, he would want to, in this text, crank the drums up loud for you, right? Like, and overpower anything else in this text. He would just want you to hear death, 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 death. Like he would want those drums of death to be loud in your ears and heart. He would want you to be terrified. So I want you to feel the beat, but unlike Satan, I want you also in this text to hear the melody that's here. There's even notes, there's hints here, uh, even in this text of a melody, of a sweet melody that God is writing for us. I want to point out a couple of those notes that are starting in this song. I don't want you to only uh, feel the beat. I want you to hear the melody as well. That'll be the second point. God began this melody of his grace back in the Garden of Eden. Uh, there was a, a singular note as he was about to expel Adam and Eve from the garden. He had told them that someday he would send one of the offspring of the woman uh, to bruise or even crush the head of the serpent who had tempted them, uh, that, that he was going to send this rescuer. And it was kind of cryptic, but it was true, and it was powerful. And I think it registered in Adam and Eve's heart, and then they passed it down, presumably, to their children and great-grandchildren, all the way down to the Methuselahs and the Lamechs, the Noahs. They, they had passed this promise down. And in this text, Genesis 5, God adds a few more notes uh, in the melody, a few more glimpses of his grace in this text. And I want to point out a few of those here. Uh, the first one is going to be right at the beginning of the text. Uh, because we could be tempted in a chapter like this as dominated by death, we could forget the blessedness of human existence, right? But uh, this uh, chapter reminds us of the blessedness of being a human being, right? It starts in the first couple of verses recording creation, how God created man in his likeness, male and female, uh, that he created them in his likeness. And verse 2 says that he blessed them. And that's just recapping, uh, referring back to Genesis 1, that God blessed them in the beginning, before sin, right? So there's this blessing that God gave to Adam and Eve, but then they sin and rebel, right? And you could be tempted to think that blessing is just gone. No more goodness to human existence. But the story continues in this first generation. It says that Adam, in verse 3, fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, 
and named him Seth. And embedded in that little statement, I think that he fathered a son in his image, is two things. One is that, the, yes, the cursedness of, and the fallenness of human existence was passed on to him. There's a reason all of them die, right, after him. But simultaneous, there's a blessedness of being a human. You have the image of God within you. There, that blessing did not just depart from humanity altogether when they left the garden. There's still, in some ways, this blessing of God upon the human race that he doesn't fully retract, that he doesn't take back. And so there's this note of blessing right at the beginning of this dark chapter, right? That this note of God's blessing uh, to human beings. And then as we work through, there's, there's two more things I want to show you in this text. There's two more uh, notes, if you want to think of it, in the melody uh, of God's grace here. Because there's two, if you were listening closely as I was reading the text, there was two breaks from the pattern, right? There was two men whose, the record of them had broke from the pattern, that really tight pattern, and they were Enoch and Lamech. Those were the two guys uh, who the, the pattern broke. Lamech, his words are recorded for us, right? And then the Enoch, the first one, there, there's this statement that is profound that this brother did not die, right? And so I, I want to point those out briefly. Interestingly, those two names, Enoch and Lamech, also both appeared in the genealogy back in chapter 4, which is just interesting uh, that those two names were back in that other genealogy. They're not the same men. Uh, they were One was descended from Cain, the other was descended from Seth, but the, uh, the author includes them on purpose as, as parallels, but different. Okay, So I want to show you two things real briefly. One about Enoch. Okay, This brother, his record of his life is fascinating. Verses 21 through 24. This is very short, but it's fascinating. What this text says about Enoch is is not, for all the other men, it says that he lived, blah, 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 right? For, For Enoch, it says in verse 22, instead of just saying Enoch lived after he fathered Methuselah, it says Enoch walked with God. That is a a fascinating phrase. I could do a whole sermon sometime just on that phrase because he doesn't say he walked before God, just like in a moral sense, but he walked with him, like in a relational sense. There was something unique about how Enoch interacted with God. He walked with him, and that's repeated down in verse 24, right? So he walks with God, and then the end of his record does not end, and he died, Right? Every other one. And he died. And he died. And he died. And he died. And you're like expecting that drum kick again with Enoch. And then it's like a rest in musical terms, right? Like there, there's silence. And you're like, what? Like, okay. So how this record ends is it says that he walked with God, verse 24, and he was not, for God took him. So Enoch. And this is mysterious to us. We don't have a lot of data to go off of, but Enoch does not die a natural death like us, like all the men who preceded him and, and follow him. God, if you want to think of it this way, translates him into glory. He doesn't die a, a natural death like the rest of humanity. He is spared from death. And he, it just says that he is taken by God. God took him, presumably to heaven, right? This is an anomaly, it is not a norm, right? The only two men we have records of in the scriptures that were like this were him and then Elijah. Uh, Those are the only two records. This wasn't like an expectation that now every person after it thinks, I'm going to escape death. I want you to not think your life is going to have a rest at the end of it, uh, from the drumbeat. 
Like the drumbeat continues. This is an anomaly. It's not a norm. But this is the first, I would say, biblical hint in the record of Genesis of the afterlife, right? That this first sense of like, it's not just he died, but he's taken somewhere. What? Like where? And he's taken by God, presumably to be with God. It's like this hint that human existence endures even beyond life on this earth, that it's not merely limited to this earth. But even more than that, I, I would say this note struck in Enoch's life. It's a hint to us that death is maybe not as final as we think, right? That maybe death is not this ultimate, undefeatable, unconquerable thing. That God is in charge of it, right? That, that he can suspend it. That he, he governs death. It is not this power that, that God is subject to, but it is subject to him. Right? We get that note uh, of God's control over death that it may not be quite so final as we thought. And so hold that for a moment. The other man who, whose name and his record uh, is a break in the pattern is Lamech. Uh, he, his words are actually recorded for us, right? Similarly to the genealogy back in chapter 4, that Lamech's words were recorded, right? But if you were here with us last Sunday, you saw that descendant of Cain. His words were about vengeance, and I'd strike people down, and people should fear me, that type of language. Whereas this Lamech down in 28 through 31 his is a very different type of word, right? It's a word of hope. It's a word of anticipation, uh, of not of vengeance, but of hope. So this man, Lamech, he's presumably heard uh, this promise that God had given in the garden, that someday there's going to be this one who would bruise the head of the serpent, who would crush that enemy, right? And so he has hope, and we don't know how he knows this, but he's proclaiming this hope. It starts in verse 29, because he, he, he names his son Noah, and there's significance to naming. I don't have time to get into all that, but the naming of people in the scriptures. And tied to the meaning of this name Noah, he explains it, is there's this idea that he anticipates, Lamech anticipates, that somehow through this son, Noah, there's going to be this rest given or this relief or comfort. Yours might use different words. I'm not sure. But that there's, there's this cursedness of life uh, in this earth. There's a cursedness of the ground, a difficulty. There's painfulness, he references, and toil in our efforts that, that, that he's living now for hundreds of years, right? There's this painfulness. And he's anticipating somehow through his son Noah there's going to be relief, even in this earth, even in this life. There's going to be a change. There's going to be a, a relief, a respite of sorts that comes through his son Noah, what I think Lamech didn't know is how tragic of an event was going to take to bring that about, right? That, that the, this flood looming where death and destruction and judgment's going to come. But he does have this note of hope that relief can come even in this earth, even in this life. There can be a relief from the curse, right? And I, I, I want to us to pause and note the interesting contrast between these two notes of Enoch and then of Lamech and their life and their words. Uh, Enoch's story, I think rightly, gave these original readers and gives us like a hope of heaven, right? Like a hope of being released from this earth, like being released from the painful realities of this earth and going to be with God in heaven. That, that's what uh, Enoch's story gives us and imparts to us is this hope to go to be with God. That's what his story gives, right? But Lamech's, his word and what he anticipates is hope for life on this earth, 
right? That in, the, in space and time, like in the work of my hands, in the experience of my life, in my body and on this planet, that there's going to be relief, that there's going to be uh, a renewal of the ground. There's going to be a lifting in some sense of this curse. And so you have these interesting contrasts, a longing for heaven that grows for Enoch, but a hope for the earth as well that Lamech has, right? And in seeing Enoch, I hope we have a growing desire that we can go and be with God, Right? But in, in hearing Lamech's words, I hope that we have a growing hope and desire that this world, that the earth, the space and time, things can be made right. That our hope is not merely to go to heaven, but our hope is a new creation, a, 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 re, a reset of sorts of this earth where in space and time we can live with God's favor and God's people. So this song of God's grace, this drumbeat of death, but this melody of God's grace, it continues in the scriptures, right? It continues for the centuries ahead. It continues even today, right? The more notes get added to the melody, the drumbeat stays the same. Death, 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 death. But more and more notes get added to the melody as as time goes on. We'll see the flood. We'll see in the scriptures as they progress, the exodus. We'll see uh, the, the conquest of Canaan, all these sorts of things. These notes continue. But that longing for heaven and that hope for the earth that start here, they meet together in the person of Jesus and his life and what he did. This descendant who would come from Seth far out in the future I want to take just a few minutes in ending to talk about our great Savior and his connection uh, to this text and to you. I want to talk about his death and I want to talk about his resurrection because I think his death helps us see the fulfillment of what Enoch experienced, that, that we can go to be with God. But his resurrection shows us the hope of Lamech can become true in even greater measure that in space and time our physical bodies can be raised and we can have uh, a hope in the physical life as well. So a few things about our great Savior, Jesus. Contrast him with Enoch, okay? Enoch was taken by God out of this world, right? Jesus was sent by God into this world, right? Those are very different things. Like Enoch was granted escape. Christ was sent into this world, right? He came into this cursed world where the drumbeat is loud, right? He wept at tombs, right? He stood by beds of people who had just died. Like he ministered to people who were sick and hurting. He's hearing the drumbeat with physical ears, like you and I. Like he has a, a body, he, he sees it, he feels it, right? Enoch walked with God. This tells us this. Jesus perfectly walked with God, right? Enoch was still a sinner. This phrase that he walked with God isn't a statement of his perfection, but Jesus perfectly walked with God while he was on this planet, right? He had no sin. He had no disobedience to God. When it came to the point of their time to die, Enoch avoided a death that he did deserve, right? Graciously, God allowed him to avoid a death that he did deserve. Christ endured a death that he did not deserve, right? Like when he went to the cross, he didn't deserve death. He didn't deserve God's judgment, but that's what he experienced at the cross, right? Because at the cross, Jesus, that one who had perfectly walked before God, walked with God, he took our sin upon himself, right? And he was crushed. He was put to death in our place, not just by soldiers, but by God the Father, 
Like God the Father's judgment came down upon him in our place as a substitute for us so that we might be forgiven, right? So that we might have our record with the Lord made clean and pure so that when death comes for us, guess what? If we're united with Jesus, we can go to be with God. We can be taken by God into his presence because our sin has been dealt with at the cross, right? We can, because of the death of Christ, have the hope of heaven. Right? That the Enoch got to experience, we can have the hope of heaven. That because Christ died, I can be forgiven. My slate can be made clean now and forever with God the Father. Right? So if you are a Christian in the room, if you've placed your faith in the Son of God who was crucified for you, I want you to hear that you do not need to fear death. That death for you is gain. And that is not just some platitude I am saying to you with emptiness to it. There's truth to it because Christ has gained you by his death good standing with God. He has gained you forgiveness. This drumbeat of death, it comes closer and closer to us, doesn't it? Every day we live, we are one step closer to that, right? It comes closer and closer, and sometimes people near us die, and it just booms in our ears and echoes in our ears, or as anniversaries come around, it echoes in our ears. Death is getting closer and closer and closer to us and to you. I want you to have hope if you've placed your trust in Christ that death for you will mean being in the presence of God himself, right? Because of the work of Christ. And you, it's not because we deserve it, right? Enoch didn't deserve it. It's not like he walked with God, so God's like, awesome, good job, dude. Like, you can come and be with me. Enoch was able to go to be with God because of the cross of Christ, right? And if you are to go to be with God, it's because of the cross of Christ. And so that's good news to us that we don't need to fear death. But I want you to hear from this text in the, the heart of Lamech. I want you to know our hope is not merely to go to heaven, right? Our hope is not merely that. It is that, but it is more than that, right? Our hope is is more than just going to be with God in heaven. Our hope is that someday we will be raised from the dead with physical bodies to live on a new earth as part of a new creation, right, where there is no death. There is no temptation. That is what our ultimate hope is. Heaven is like a, 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 a place along the road to that where someday God will bring heaven to earth and merge the two and the dead in Jesus will be raised and that's where the resurrection of Christ is so important, right? The death of Christ gains us forgiveness. It gains us pardon from God but the resurrection of Jesus gives us hope and certainty that someday my dead body will be raised as well. Someday, like, my dusty ashes, wherever they may be, will be reassembled and reconstituted. And I can know that because God raised Jesus from the dead that Sunday long ago. It is not just some wishful thought. God raised Jesus from the dead. Enoch avoided death. Christ conquered death, right? Like, Enoch avoided it. Christ conquered it. Because we needed somebody who could not just slip death, but who could slay it right? Like somebody who could conquer it and defeat it. We needed somebody who would crush the head of the serpent, not just outrun it, right? And that is what Jesus did at the cross and in his resurrections, that he experienced death and then he emerged out of the tomb showing that he holds the keys of death and that he can raise up anyone just like God raised him, right? That Sunday morning, it's like a new beat began, right? That drumbeat of death had started thousands of years before and it continues now, but someday that drumbeat will stop. 
But on the morning that Christ was raised from the dead, his heart began to beat, right? As a, as a new creation, not just as ethereal in the clouds, but a physical body was raised from the dead never to die again. A new creation was starting, and we get to be part of that. Like now, but eventually in space and time, we will be raised with bodies indestructible because that is the body that Christ has been given and we can join in it. And so I want you to have not just, if you're a Christian in the room, I don't just want you to have a hope that someday you can die a happy old man and go to be with God. That is good. That is a great desire, but I want you to long for more than that and to know there's more than that in the future for God's people, that there is a resurrection of the dead to live on a recreated earth forever with God and his people. That is good news, and you get hints of it, the melody right here in the text, right? And when Satan points you to your eventual grave, because he can, when he points you to that Talk back to him and point him to the empty grave of Christ. <laughs> I am heading to a grave, but I will emerge out of it just like Christ did. And so you don't need to fear death. Like you can have a fearlessness in the face of your death and the death of others because of the work of Christ and the certainty of his resurrection and ours. The work of Jesus, the person of Jesus, he gives you things that medicine cannot that doctors cannot, right? That treatments cannot, that just being careful and cautious cannot. You can prolong, you can delay your death maybe through certain things, but eating healthy, doctor's visits, none of these things can secure you eternal life and certainly cannot secure you resurrection, but Christ can. And someday even Methuselah's life will feel like a vapor to us, right? Like when we're raised in the new earth, like 969 years will feel like nothing. It'll feel like a, a fleeting thing to us when we're in glory with Christ. I want to end with lyrics of a song. I know I have gone long, but this song is precious to me. Uh, we sang this. We had a, a miscarriage of a daughter uh, years and years ago. She was far enough along that we ended up having her be buried at a cemetery just down the street from us. And we sang this song. Uh, Pastor Rod even led a, a service there at the graveside. We sang the song in Christ alone. And the, the last verse of it, I can hardly even sing out without crying because of the, the loss of my daughter, but also the, my hope that is in Jesus and what he has earned for us and what he has gained for us. This is how that song ends. I'm going to read these lyrics. I'm going to pray and then we'll sing. But that song ends this way, and I think it's fitting coming from this text. It ends this way. No guilt in life. No fear in death. Why? This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man could ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home here in the power of Christ. I'll stand. Amen. Amen. May God's melody of grace always overpower the drumbeat of death. So feel the beat of this text, but hear its melody as well that points us to the good news of Christ.